Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Welcome to back to the show. Uh, I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. I'll be with you for the next two hours um, as we have bonus two-hour Free For All Fridays all summer long until September. And, uh, you know, boy, has it been a big news week. Um, you know, as you know, every week uh, I sit down with uh, with Sam, um, the producer of this show and also the producer of the Evan Solomon Show, and uh, we go through the news, and I'll tell you, uh, we didn't know where to put it all. Um, this week's show, we're going to, of course, talk about the Pope's visit. The Pope visit wraps up today in a village, or visit, or, you know, whatever you call it, in Iqaluit. Um So we are going to have the mayor of Iqaluit on a little later on the show at 1245 and also speak to a residential school survivor at 1235 today about that. Um, we're also going to talk about the war in Ukraine. I think, you know, I've talked a lot about the fact that on this show, you know, this is a platform. This is not maybe something that's top of mind for a majority of Canadians um, but it's, I think it's important that we continue to talk about the war. Um, so we're going to be talking to a former ambassador to Ukraine about the latest there, um, including um, the or the uh, Russian government's move to cut off gas to the EU and the implications. But our next topic uh, we're going to get into is something that's personally important to me. And it's certainly not making massive headlines, um, but I think it is a big deal. As many of you will know, I'm a big animal lover. I love specifically dogs. Um, I volunteered with a rescue organization based in Toronto called Fetch and Release. Uh, fostered three dogs through them, and currently my current dog, Toby, who you occasionally hear on air when he decides he wants to pipe in. And there's been a big decision that impacts rescue organizations across this country by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Um, they've decided to ban the entry of what they call commercial dogs from 100 high-risk countries uh, because of, they say, a risk for rabies beginning on September 28th. So what is a commercial dog, you ask? What does that mean? They say dogs for resale, adoption, fostering, or breeding. And which countries are high risk? Well, there's places like Ukraine and Afghanistan, as I mentioned. Those are countries impacted by wars, or Philippines and China, where dogs are frankly tortured and sold as parts of the meat trade. So this blanket ban is going to be condemning hundreds of thousands of dogs to die. Dogs that don't have to die, because canes are incredibly generous. People like me, I foster dogs from Canada, Texas, Bahrain. Um, and the CFIA could, the Food Inspection Agency, could exempt these rescue organizations, as they do in the U.S., but they're refusing to do so. Uh, to join me to talk about that, we have Camille Labchuk. She's the Executive Director of Animal Justice, a Canadian animal protection group. Camille, thanks for coming on the show. It's so good to be here, Amanda. So this story's been kind of bubbling around but not making huge news. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm personally really invested in this. Um, I see, you know, some of the groups that I volunteered with. I see the posts about these dogs. We only have so many days. You know, they're horror stories. So can you tell us what the impact of this decision has been on Canadian rescue organizations? Yeah, and I just want to thank you, Amanda, for all the rescue work you do and so many other thousands of Canadians who are so invested in making sure dogs can come to Canada and have a better life. So there are many rescue organizations that operate in countries around the world that tend to be third world countries that don't have the same animal welfare infrastructure that Canada has. Um, these are countries where dogs might be living on the streets, dodging traffic, not knowing where the next meal comes from, or perhaps being shot at. Um, or living in a you know a high kill shelter where they're certain to meet death, and Canadian rescue organizations are able to work collaboratively with folks on the ground in those countries and break dogs over here and give them a shot at a better life. And uh, you know I know you know this firsthand, Amanda, but the experience of those dogs coming from a situation where they don't know if they're going to survive to a loving Canadian home is is really heartwarming. And what I'm hearing from these groups is that they weren't consulted on this policy, and many of them aren't sure how they can continue their operations, and they might have to fold up shop, leaving dogs to certainly die. So 
and, and when you say they weren't consulted on this policy, I know, you know, the, the CFIA has come out, the government's come out and said, you know, there's no actual active cases of rabies in the country right now. Um, the They said the impetus was this because they found one case of it that had been brought in. Um, but it was caught. And two, having worked with some of the groups, including bringing, like I, I drove down to, to, um, to tech, to actually Tennessee and brought back like five, 50 dogs from that were going to die that had come in through various places in the U S and other folks across the, across the border. We drove down over a couple days to rescue them. And I witnessed the test. They all get vetted. Um, all this stuff is, is a pre-requirement for entering Canada. So is how risk, how high risk is the actual risk to Canada with this ban? Well, what the CFIA has done, and, you know, I think everyone appreciates that the goal of keeping rabies out of Canada is really important. No one wants to see dogs infected with rabies, let alone have it spread to dogs domestically or humans. Um, but we think that there's other ways that they can accomplish that goal. So as you mentioned, you know, vaccinations are, are already required. Um, the CFIA can probably do more just to be certain about the origin of those vaccinations and that they're done properly. Another thing that they can do that they don't currently require right now is blood tests for antibodies against rabies. So one way to make sure that the vaccination took hold, um, you know, they're almost 100% effective to start with, but to be extra sure, you can do a rabies blood test and see if a dog has developed antibodies that will stop rabies from, from taking hold. And then another way that uh, we can be sure that rabies isn't coming in is by requiring dogs coming into the country to do a period of quarantine. Um, these are all measures that the states currently does require. That The U.S., you may, you may know about this and some of your listeners may have heard, but the U.S. put into place a similar policy last summer. And again, it was very upsetting to a lot of rescues and left a lot of dogs out in the cold. But they actually rescinded that policy in June, and they put into place rabies uh, vaccine requirements, testing, and quarantine, which they think can solve the problem. So if that's good enough for the CDC and the states, I think it should be for the CFIA as well. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, uh, Camille. And this is Camille Labchuk. She's the executive director of Animal Justice, a Canadian animal protection group, speaking about the government's decision to ban, um, I guess, bringing in dogs uh, who, you know, from about 100 high-risk countries, which is, you know, dramatically impacting the, the work of a lot of rescue organizations. Um, what can people who are concerned about this, folks like me who love animals, that, you know, I really think how we treat our animals talks a lot about ourselves as a compassionate society. What can they do if they want to sort of speak up and say, hey, government of Canada, this is ridiculous. There's a blueprint in the States to do this humanely. Like what, what should they be? What should they be doing? Yeah, it's super important right now for the government to hear from people about how this is affecting them and how it's affecting dogs more importantly. So I'm, I'm urging everyone to contact a member of parliament and let them know that this decision simply can't stand, that there needs to be consultation and, and something done to make sure that rescue dogs can keep coming in. You know, I think it would be a good thing if we shut off truly commercial imports. So dogs coming from puppy mills around the world, um, they, yeah, that, that absolutely should be shut off. But dogs who are being rescued and brought to Canada for adoption need to come into this country still to have another hope at life. So I'm asking people to contact their MPs, um, write a letter to the CFIA, file a complaint with the CFIA explaining why this policy um, is bad. And, you know, importantly as well, I think what we can do is advocate for an end to puppy mills in Canada because that's a huge issue here as well. And I worry that if rescue dogs aren't coming into the country, then more people might turn to puppy mills domestically, which would be very bad. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Camille, for coming on the show um, and, and speaking to us about that. We'll continue to follow that story. Thanks so much, Amanda. That was Camille Labchuk. She's the executive director of Animal Justice. Uh, it's a Canadian animal protection group. 
And if you're just joining the show, uh, we're just talking about a, an issue that's, I, you know, sometimes I get to do personal things, and this is a personal thing for me as someone who's volunteered um, on and off over the years with animal rescue groups, who's fostered rescue dogs. My current dog, Toby, uh, we adopted him at nine. Um, he was a surrender that was going to be put down. And the government's currently going to ban, um, as of September 2022, September 28, 2022, ban the import of commercial dogs, which would impact rescue organizations. Um, and they don't have to do that. They can actually follow a model that's done in the U.S. that's perfectly safe, that allows us to humanely rescue a lot of these animals, which are in you know, unbelievable conditions. I can tell you myself, even going down to the southern U.S., seeing what some of these dogs had had to live in, um, be it starvation, abuse, um, being shot, uh, it's it's incredible what you know what they're put through, what these groups do. Um, they fund a lot of the uh, they fund a lot of the medical you know services for the dogs. They bring them in from all over. I've rescued dogs from Bahrain, and you know it's a good, wonderful thing that you can do to contribute. Um, I recognize there may be bigger issues facing uh, society for sure, but this is certainly one uh, that continues to tug at my heartstrings. And I really hope that if you if you want to get involved, you can donate to rescue organizations. I donate to the Humane Society and others. Uh, you can volunteer as a foster. They're trying to bring these dogs in beforehand. Um, I fostered. It's a wonderful experience. Um, or, as she mentioned, you can contact your local member of parliament and say they need to take a look at this bill and what's done. So this week, in other news, Russia finally acted on weeks of threats and cut off gas supply to Europe to barely a trickle. So as you know, a couple weeks ago, the Canadian government actually issued a waiver on sanctions against Russia to provide turbines to Russia so that they could actually increase the flow of gas to Europe. This is a huge sort of pressure point for Europeans as they lead into the winter and fall. I know we don't want to talk about that, um, so that they can heat their homes. So what does this mean for the future of the war on Ukraine? A former ambassador, uh, Ukraine's former ambassador to Canada, joins us next to talk about this on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, and this is the extra special two-hour edition of Free For All Friday. You're getting all summer long. Uh, and I didn't mention off the top, but it is a long weekend, so happy long weekend, friends. I hope wherever I hope you're getting somewhere um, fabulous. Um, I will be departing shortly for a dock, but uh, I'm definitely with you for the next hour and 40 minutes. We're going to talk about some of the biggest stories of the week. And this is certainly a story uh, that caught my attention uh, over the last couple of weeks, but particularly this week, as Russia finally acted on weeks of threats and overnight cut the supply of gas flowing through their Nord Stream 1 pipeline to just 20% of its normal capacity. So what that does is that brings increasing pressure on Europe, right? Germany, Italy, other European countries depend heavily on that gas piped in from Russia to heat their homes through the winter and also fill their tanks ahead of the winter. Um, this also comes after Canada made an incredibly controversial decision a few weeks ago to waive sanctions against Russia and send a half dozen gas turbines, which were supposed to allow them to restore the normal flow to the country. Now, this is because the Kremlin has claimed it's a technical issue. Um, in response, Ukrainian President Zelensky released a video at the time condemning the decision by Canada. And gas flow has been restricted to Russia or to uh, to Europe down like 60% since June. So joining us to talk about this and get an update on, you know, what's happening in the war in Ukraine is Andriy Shevchenko. He's the former Ukrainian ambassador, Andriy Shevchenko, I should say, the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining the show. 
Thanks for having me, Amanda. Were you surprised by this move by Russia to um, cut it down to 20%? Not at all. Uh, Russia, it has always been clear to us and to everyone who has been watching Russia, Moscow will continue uh, using its uh, uh, gas supplies as a weapon against the West. So do you think when, you know, there was obviously pressure from, um, there was pressure on Canada from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to, you know, make an exception to send those turbines over to Russia because they claimed it was a technical issue. So do you think that Canada and their EU ILS sent a signal of weakness to Russia when they made that decision to do that? Yes, and um, if you rewind uh, back to the discussions we had a couple of weeks ago, it was exactly the argument that uh, that you could clearly hear. We told that don't trust Moscow if they want to continue blackmail through the, their gas supplies, they will be doing that. And uh, even their promise or their intention to keep supplies with this turbine, to, uh, with this turbine, did not mean anything. They just were looking for a weak link in the chain of sanctions. And I think it was very unfortunate that they found this weak link in Ottawa. Uh, do you think, so this, this waiver wasn't a one-time thing. It's, it's over the course of the next two years. So would you like to see Canada revoke the waiver given, you know, Russia has not taken the steps they said they would do, which was increase the supply? I think Canada should, uh, uh, should review this decision and go back to, to this very clear sanctions re re regime, which had been imposed by, uh, by Canada. Uh, I am absolutely sure that we will have to go into that direction if we are serious about about uh, starving the Russian war machine uh, to uh, death. And uh, look, I think we in Ukraine, we really find ourselves in a very unfortunate uh, and desperate situation with this specific case, because we don't have that many friends uh, as close as Canada is. and. Um, I think every Canadian should be very proud of this leading role that Canada has been playing in this international coalition against Russia and in support of Ukraine. When it comes to financial support, it's probably one of the biggest uh, assistance that Ukraine is receiving in terms of per capita amount of money. So it's very unfortunate to find Canada in this situation when we have to tell our very close and our dear friends, guys, you are wrong on this. Russia has been making fools out of you and uh, you've got to, to review this decision. Uh, so you're in the ground on Ukraine, in Ukraine right now, and this war has been going on for, I think Canadians sort of forget, but it's been going on for over five months now, right, is my understanding. Um, what's it like in Ukraine right now? It, it means that uh, the country is uh, bleeding. Um, we lose uh, our people and our friends and our relatives. Uh, every day. That includes my family too. And uh, by now, uh, there is no family in Ukraine that has not felt this tragedy. Um, it also means that we had to switch to the marathon mode. Uh, we understand that peace will not be both quick and good. It can be either quick or good. And we, if we want good, fair and sustainable peace, we've got to be ready that it's going to be a long run, uh, a marathon run, and this is exactly where Ukrainians are uh, right now. And uh, finally, 
we do feel tremendous support uh, from abroad. We do feel tremendous support from Canada. Sometimes uh, it's not as much and it's not as fast as we would like it to see. But overall, we believe that we are on the right side of history. Yes, quite often we, we do feel that we are not alone, but we are lonely. But overall, I think there is, there is an overwhelming feeling that uh, we will overcome and we will win this fight. If you're just joining us, this is Andriy Shevchenko. He's the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, and he's on the ground in Ukraine right now. Um, you mentioned that Canada has been, and the Canadian government has been a big supporter of, you know, the sanction decision aside, has been a big supporter of, of, the, of Ukraine right now. Um, you know, given, as you mentioned, the length of this war, the fact that you're going into, as you put it, marathon mode, which I think is very apt, what... You know, I think Canadians aren't seeing it on the front page every day, but which is why we want to talk about it here. We want to keep it top of mind. But what can what more can Canadians do right now to support Ukraine and folks like yourself? You should uh, lead uh, the free world when it comes to the sanctions and when it comes to setting right standards. And two questions uh, you should have very clear answers to. First is why is it important to Canada, and second what exactly the country like Canada can do. Why is it important for you? Because both Canada and Ukraine, we know that if international order collapses, if the international rules of the game do not work, then it's going to be bad to our countries, to our nations, to our economies, to our people. So when Canada supports Ukraine, it's not just about Ukraine, it's about fair rules of this international order, which, uh, which are important both for you and for us. And second, um, I think, Many Canadians underestimate the leadership role that that your country can play on this. Uh, you have very strong and very impressive reputation in the international organizations. And when you do something, that, that goes a long way. When Canada was the first country uh, to say that you're going to seize Russian assets and you're going to use that to rebuild the Ukrainian uh, economy, that was such a powerful signal and, and that made many countries around the world to think about following, following the case. So please continue being a true leader of this international coalition. It's going to be good for your country and it's going to be good for the world. That's Andriy Shevchenko. He's the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. Thank you so much for joining the show, Ambassador. I hope you stay safe and uh, thinking of you and your family. Thank you, Amanda. So there we go. That's the, you know, what we're hearing on the ground in Ukraine. Um, you know, that war continues on, right? I think it's important to remember that just because it's not top of mind for the rest of us, um, you know, there's a war in the middle of Europe that's been going on for five months, six days, uh, that where people are dying, um, where Canada as a country, I think, has a significant role to play uh, in the world and domestically, where waivers that we put in place a couple weeks ago as a government, frankly, did not achieve the ends that they were supposed to. I understand that our government was under a lot of pressure from Germany, but we saw the results of that this week when Russia further dramatically reduced supplies to their playing games. So I certainly think, you know, if we need to keep an eye on this story. We'll certainly be keeping an eye on this story as we move forward. The Pope is on his final day here in Canada. So as we know, the Pope has been visiting and uh, touring across the country for five days on a, a tour of reconciliation with Indigenous, Métis, Inuit communities, and we've all been watching it closely. He's apologized for the atrocities committed by Christians against Indigenous people. But a big question that we're hearing, is this enough? Um, is this apology enough? Has it meant what it's supposed to do? Is it bringing closure to the Indigenous people in this country? Uh, next up, after the break, we're going to speak to a residential school survivor 
about their experience, about their perspective on this apology, and how we move forward as a country. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we dig into the biggest stories of the week, both um, with newsmakers, um, opinion makers, and then, of course, from 1 to 2, we talk to our panel of, uh, of experts to uh, dig into the many issues facing our country and debate the news. So, as mentioned before the break, um, Monday was a historic day for this country. Uh, Pope Francis stood before Indigenous elders and survivors of residential schools and begged forgiveness for the deplorable evil committed by the Roman Catholic Church. I am here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is of again asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I am deeply sorry. He continued his apology with this. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppress the indigenous peoples. This comes years after the 2005 Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada issued findings detailing a history of physical and sexual abuse of Indigenous children in the country run by Catholic residential school systems. In total, 150,000 children from First Nations were placed in 139 schools run under government contract, mostly by the Catholic Church, over a 150-year period. Um, there's been many responses and takes about his apology and, of course, the last five days. Uh, joining me to talk about this and what it means for her is Cindy Woodhouse, Assembly of First Nations of Manitoba Regional Chief. She's a day school survivor and was in attendance on Monday and Tuesday when the Pope delivered an apology in Alberta. Cindy, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners, um, I guess from your perspective, you know, was what, what's this week been like for you? Um, has it been meaningful? Uh, has this apology been enough for you? Well, you know, I think, you know, for for our survivors, you know, I think people are on different paths. I know, you know, um, in Rome, I went, I traveled to Rome with, you know, Phil Fontaine and other residential school survivors uh, from Manitoba here, <clears throat> you know, and then we'd heard the apology there and, you know, it, it just, it felt more heartfelt when it was on our own land at home here in Muscogee, mm -hmm. on our own treaty land and, among, and amongst the, many of our people sitting there and, you know, to feel the impact of our elders weeping. And, and at the same time, some of them um, were joyful and letting go and others, others, you know, they're, they're still on, they're, they're going to be on a long path of healing and that's okay. And um, some people even refused, you know, there were some people that um, traveled and then, you know, they couldn't come into the, you know, to the area where they just couldn't. And, and I didn't want to ask them why, but I just, I, I'm trying, you know, as, as a leader, just trying to, um, you know, be with them and, and accept everybody where they are within their healing journey. You know, it's, it's a dark history that we have. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about that. We've seen some some individuals or some some you know you know 
tribes or bands that have said, we embrace this. He's received a ceremony headdress for one example, and others saying that's not appropriate. Um, what you're saying is basically there's no one way to react to this, right? That everybody has their own sort of experience and perspective, and we need to have, I guess, the public and perhaps all of us need to have sort of give space for that and understand that it's not going to be a, yes, this is enough from from everyone. That's, well, we shouldn't that expect that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of follow-up. There's going to be a lot of, there has to be work done between um, the Catholic Church and First Nations for many years to come. We have to work together. We have to um, start talking about, um, you know, bringing back the artifacts from from Rome and, and, you know, start doing all those, all that work that has to get done that's been called upon for so long. And so, uh, you know, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's, it's, you know, people are at different different areas communities are at different areas of where they are and all of that and, and that's okay and let's talk a little bit about that because obviously the we've you know canada's watched the last five days um and obviously he's in a Callowit today and both the prime minister and the pope have talked about this as the beginning of a journey of healing and so have you so what do you think is needed next from the church you were in rome um you were with the pope in attendance on monday and tuesday um, what what are the next steps Canadians should expect to see or that you think that, you know, Indigenous Métis and Inuit will be asking for from the Catholic Church? Well, I, at first, I, I really believe that, you know, the Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops, as well as um, churches all across this country and Catholics around the world, that we begin those conversations on, on um, you know, what those next steps are. There's there's so many next steps that we can, that, you know, that we can focus on, but, you know, what's our main priorities now? And uh, you know, I think regrouping is um, getting some of our survivors together to 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 see what they want to do next. And I think that um, this, you know this was a a good first step, and and we have a long way to go. Do you think the apology went far enough? There's been some criticism of missing reference to sexual abuse initially that uh, suffered by survivor that was added on Thursday in a in a you know follow up apology. Um, a reluctance to talk about the Catholic Church specifically instead of Christians. Again, that's been sort of changed to local Catholic institutions. Um, but do you think the apology went far enough? Well, I just, I'll, I'll say this. There's is very, uh, you know, there's some survivors that I've talked to that, uh, you know, that and many actually that are very happy with um, how this weekend went, you know, quietly saying, you know, I'm glad that he came here. I'm glad that he apologized. And I'm glad that we're starting this journey and there's been a few others that have said, you know, we wish that he would have went farther. Again, that's an, that's an individual opinion for many First Nations and many communities. And, uh, you know, uh, there's always, always room for improvement, no matter, no, matter what, uh, no matter what the issue is. You know, whether it's, it's this or something else, uh, there's always uh, room for perfection. Absolutely. And if you're just joining us, this is Cindy Woodhouse. She's the Assembly of First Nations Manitoba Regional Chief. She's a day school survivor and was in attendance on Monday and Tuesday when the Pope delivered an apology in Alberta. Um, Cindy, can I ask you, the Canadian government recently announced a settlement of billions of dollars with Indigenous communities um, as part of sort of an agreement with 90,000 survivors of residential schools. Um, Prime Minister Harper apologized in 2008. Do you think the government of Canada has taken enough responsibility for their actions in this? Well, I certainly want to hope that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for the apology back then. That was also a, a big starting point in this country. And I know that, like I said, we have a long way to go. We still have a, a child welfare system that um, many say is like a, a secondary system after the residential schools that we now have to fix. And there's, there's big issues in this country that um, we still need to be focusing on today. And that's one thing that I want to focus on is on... Um, trying to help to fix the broken, 
extremely broken child welfare system in this country to make sure that families are back together again and to make sure that um, you know our kids aren't left all over the country and with, with people that you know are not of our culture that don't know us um, but they're taken from us and, and they were incentivized to be taken and I think um, you know as a, as a, a younger leader I'll say that uh, you know seeing the effects of that from residential schools and now day schools I'd like to see that uh, you know that fixed and, and I know that it's going to take some time but I think that we all have to work together to make sure that that happens. I have about a minute left, and I just love to pick up on what you just mentioned, which is sort of how I think Canadians are being more sensitized to this issue, right? Like when I was younger in school, we didn't really learn about it. And I was talking to my nieces who were 8 and 10, and it's now part Mm -hmm. of their curriculum. Um, Do you see a change amongst Canadians around their attitudes and um, understanding of of the atrocities that our government committed and kind of our responsibilities towards Indigenous people? Oh, absolutely. I see more Canadians, you know, being allies, um, coming on board to want to talk about these really these really hard issues that aren't always easy to talk about in our country. Uh, you know, certainly when I started, being, I was an assistant back back in the day. You know, I'm aging myself now, but uh, <laughs> few, you know, maybe 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 18 years ago, I remember looking at, you know, we'd had um, polling on what people thought of First Nations people at that time. And how far that we have come now, where people are trying to understand what has what has happened um, with our dark history and even with our light history. You know, we we've, we've brought a lot. We've, we've all um, you know brought a lot to this country, including you know our treaties and you know living in peace with Canadians. We've always been a peaceful, loving people. And so, so seeing the differences now in public opinion polling, absolutely, we are um, you know we're changing in this country, and I think in a in a better way and trying to understand each other. Thank you so much, uh, Cindy Woodhouse, Assembly of First Nations, Manitoba Regional Chief. Thanks for joining the show. Appreciate that. Thank you. Take care. The Pope is in Ikalado, as I mentioned, on the final day of his Canadian pilgrimage, and so is our next guest. Join us for the latest edition of our Cross Canada Road Trip on Free For All Friday. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, where we dig into some of the biggest stories of the week, of course. And we've been talking so far about uh, Pope Francis's trip across Canada. He's been here for five days now and just spoke to a uh, day school survivor um, who had a you know experience with that was with the Pope with the apology and certainly talked about the nuanced way I think we need to treat um, this trip, which is yes, there's been criticisms, but there's no you know understandably there's no one way to react to that apology, right? To that experience for individuals, um, it's been healing for some, um, it's been hard for others, uh, but I think as a country it's important that we continue to recognize and uh, and look not just the Catholic Church's actions, but also frankly our government's actions, right? Which we we're a similar part of that as well. Um, and I think that's an important thing to confront, right? Just because the government settled for billions of dollars, um, just because they've apologized, I think doesn't mean that there's not um, generational trauma and issues that um, Indigenous and UAMAT uh, people continue to face in this country. So I, for one, was encouraged at the end of that conversation, I will say, 
uh, when asked, you know, do you feel Canadians are are reacting differently? Are they uh, responding differently to this? Um, are they, and, and talking to my nieces even, just their greater understanding of this issue. Like I didn't learn about it in school. It was, or very little um, versus they understand that um, orange shirt day, all those things I think add a lot to uh, the education that we need in this country. I think an understanding and a greater um, compassion for uh, what Indigenous people face as they you know, continue to make their home and and make places in this country. And of course, our next topic, um, this is a, as long-time listeners will know, um, we have a vacation inspiration or a sort of uh, cross-Canada road trip we've been doing. Over the 13 weeks, we get the extra two hours of free-for-all Friday with me. And this week, we are going north. Um, and we actually are going to uh, a province, or I should say a, a territory, that is um, populated almost entirely by Inuit people. Um, and that is, we're going to Nunavut today. So uh, we're going to Calvert, I should say. So the capital city of Nunavut. Um, now that was a, this, this the Calvert was established, or so Nunavut was established in 1990, which is interesting, right? I've obviously never been here. Always sort of dreamed of going north. Um, my uh, my fiance Mark had a not to um, not to Nunavut per se, but he did do the Northwest Territories, Alaska, and Yukon, and just said it was incredible up there. Um, and Iqaluit sits on Baffin Island, which is in Frobisher Bay. And I'm, if anyone knows history, right, we know, we know generally where that's located. Uh, but the island is best known for its ice cap mountains and Trunder Valleys. Um, it's only home to 7,250 people, which is sort of crazy if you think about it. I grew up in a small town called Amherstburg. Uh, listeners to the AM800 station, which I know we're broadcasting on right now, um, that's outside of Windsor. Uh, when I was growing up, it was 15,000 people, so even double the size of this. Um, so it's the smallest population of any capital city in Canada, but it is the largest province or territory, 20 million square kilometers. So there may not be many of them, but they are mighty in size. Uh, and we're just working right now to get the mayor of uh, Iqaluit on the phone right now. So we hope to have uh, him join us shortly. Um, there's 84% of that population, as I mentioned, is Inuit and home to a very, a very rich traditional culture, um, artists, music uh, that we hope to talk to him about today on the show. And of course, a Kalawit means many fish in Inuktitut, which I did not know when I learned about that today. So fun facts for you as we lead into this uh, segment. Uh, the biggest province or territory in Canada, as I mentioned, the longest coastline in Canada, uh, home to 36,000 islands, which is pretty crazy. Uh, and there's four official languages spoken there, which is interesting, right? We think if there's only two official languages in Canada, they have four. Um, 75% of the world's narwhals also call Nunavut home. Narwhals are obviously the, the whales with the uh, the horns on the top, sort of like swimming unicorns. Um, and 75% of them live in Nunavut, which would be pretty special, and we'll certainly ask about that. And the other piece is there's no political parties, which is interesting. They have a consensus form of government, which maybe we should take a look at in this country, because I'll tell you, if we've been watching some of the... Some of the uh, you know the political machinations and what's been going on. It's uh, it's certainly been challenging. Um, so you know we haven't yet been able to get the mayor on yet. So uh, I think maybe what we'll do while we wait for him to join us is perhaps just give you a preview. Of what we're going to talk about on the next hour of the show, which, as you know, is the free for all roundtable. So joining us uh, shortly will be a new guest, Rashmi Nair. She's co-host on the Rush on News Talk 1010. And, of course, a returning guest uh, for us is Carl Docksetter, who's the co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in St. Catharines, London, and Windsor, Ontario, from 10 to noon. He's also Indigenous, and I think we look forward to his sort of perspective on that. And one of the, speaking of politics and consensus building, actually one of the things I really wanted to talk about uh, in the next hour is going to be uh, the big Harper endorsement of Pierre Polyev this week in the Conservative leadership race. And I will totally confess, 
I worked for Prime Minister Harper, uh, so I'm a former staffer of his. I worked on his leadership campaign and obviously was very proud to work for that government, uh, and I'm, I make no bones about that. So it was very interesting to see him wade into the race. He's historically not done so with other leadership races, um, and it's a quite a big deal for Conservatives as the Prime Minister is the founder, sort of the founder of the party, right? Obviously, we have the PCs from before. Um, there was the Canadian Alliance. But him stepping in and kind of putting that final blessing on Pierre Polyev's uh, candidacy, I think, certainly uh, put that to rest to a certain extent um, for the party. I think if people thought that Pierre was going to win, was uncertain if he was going to win, I think certainly now uh, it's it's much more of a done deal than what you would expect. And of course, uh, some background on that. Obviously, people are kind of thinking, why would why would he weigh in? Right? It's un- sometimes unusual for leaders, passengers to do so, especially past prime ministers. Um, but folks may know, I don't think Harper and Sheree were never the best of friends when they were both in government. In fact, Sheree openly um, campaigned against Harper. So uh, there's not, uh, there's certainly not close friends. So I think him lining up against Sheree uh, makes a lot of sense politically for them, for him, um, and certainly probably didn't please the Sheree campaign. So we have that that debate ongoing. We're certainly going to talk to the panel about that a little later on today. And of course, this is in addition to, uh, you know, the party is this, this whole race is going to be a bit of a, I would say a bit of a mess to put it candidly with the Patrick Brown issue. Um, they've added a new debate, which Pierre Prelev has already said he's not participating in. We now have Leslin Lewis, who's threatening a boycott. If she's not, if, if questions aren't included that she likes, including Canada's pandemic response, which I think is a fair thing to debate. But the other thing they want to add here is concerns about the World Economic Forum. That's one thing she said, and I think that's a little bit of a, that just, that's a jump the shark moment for me, for sure. So we'll certainly talk to the panel after the break about that. We're also going to get into the gun buyback program that Ottawa announced this week. So Ottawa is seeking input from gun owners, businesses, and industry on proposed compensation amounts. And of course, you know, it's fascinating, right? Because I worked at City Hall in Toronto, and we launched a similar program. Obviously, it wasn't mandatory, as the minister is talking about here. Um, but what we heard overwhelmingly when I was saying this is a good this is a thing we should do, this is a thing we should consider, is that they don't work. So we'll certainly talk to the panel about that, whether they think they work, um, whether this is enough, and of course get into debating uh, the Pope's tour as well. Uh, was the apology enough if we spoken to, um, you know, the day school, survival, day school survival a little earlier today that said there was not that everybody reacts differently. So I'd love their take on that, what we expect next. So if you love our panel debates, if you love Free For All Friday, certainly tune in after the break. We're going to take a little one now, um, and that will be next on Free For All Friday. We're also going to get into some political fails, um, and I'd love to hear text from you at 71010, uh, what you think our panel, what you think of our panel's feedback and how they can, uh, if they're getting it right, if they're getting it wrong, with Carl and Rashmi. So I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We'll talk to you a little bit after this break. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. Happy almost long weekend, Canada. I hope you are having a blast today or getting ready to have a blast today or counting down the hours so you can leave work and hopefully put your feet up 
Uh, I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. Uh, and this is my favorite part of the show, I'll be totally honest. It's where we have a panel of really smart people, of newsmakers, of opinion leaders, and we debate the biggest stories of the week. And this week on the show, we have a new guest who's joining us, and she's also apparently a radio marathoner because she's co-hosting <laughs> The Rush on News Talk 1010 from 2 to 6 today. And she's also doing this show for an hour. So, Reshmi Nair, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. I assume you have your Gatorade and your energy bars all set up for your five-hour marathon. I'm just going to lean on Scott for the rest of the afternoon on this Friday. Why not? Because <laughs> they've tried to get me to do double duty. And I've literally, like when, you know, when folks are sometimes away on the rush, either. And uh, I literally in the past have said, absolutely not. I would die. Hey, what, we're to waiting do. to have you on the rush. We'd love to have you when you can make some time. <laughs> There we go. Uh, and Monday to th Monday to Thursday, I'm good. Just the Fridays, I can't. I cannot do what you can do, which is amazing. And of course, we have our returning guest, Carl Docksetter, who's the co-host of One Dish One Mike, which airs in St. Catharines, London, in Windsor, Ontario, Saturdays from 10 to noon. Carl, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm so glad to be here, and I, I'm just doing one hour, and I'm sharing it with the two of you. So th this is going to be a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to dig into these stories right away. So as noted, Monday was a historic day in this country. Uh, Pope Francis stood before Indigenous elders, survivors of residential schools, and begged forgiveness for the deplorable evil committed by the Catholic Church. I'm here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is of again asking forgiveness of telling you once more that I am deeply sorry. He continued his apology with us. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppress the indigenous peoples. He also acknowledges the effects of residential schools were, quote, catastrophic and disastrous. It is painful to think of how the firm soil of values, language, and culture that made up the authentic identity of your peoples was eroded, and that you have continued to pay the price for this. His apology and this five-day uh, pilgrimage has received mixed response from Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit. Um, as well as Canadians. Um, after the apology, Roseanne Archibald, the Assembly of First Nations National Chief, told the Evelyn Solomon Show she didn't consider this a full apology. It wasn't on behalf of the Catholic Church. It was specifically uh, the evils done by Christians and supporting the colonization assimilation process. You know, that to me is not a full apology. Since then, uh, the Pope has, again, continued his apology. And in Quebec, for example, he also spoke, he has since spoke about the fact that added the missing reference to sexual abuse survivors or sexual abuse by survivors. So then Thursday, he acknowledged that. He also acknowledged since then um, that local Catholic institutions, so he hasn't said the Catholic Church, but local Catholic institutions. Now, this comes, as we know, years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued findings detailing the historical physical and sexual abuse of Indigenous children in the country, and these schools primarily run by the Catholic Church. In total, 150,000 children from First Nations were placed in 139 schools run under government contracts, so Canadian government contract, mostly by the Catholic Church over a 150-year period. Carl, I'd like to go to you first. Obviously, um, you know, as you've talked on the show, uh, you yourself are Indigenous. Uh, how, what was this leak like for you, and did you think this apology went far enough? 
I think it's really important to give this moment to survivors. And I really have to tip my hat to a lot of the media that did a great job centering survivor voices. I, I, I was a critic coming in. I'm so far from a Catholic. There's nothing the Pope could have said, except that I take full responsibility and will do everything in our power to fix the healing. Like anything short of that would have been short of the apology. But but I do think that this has been an important week. And, and I can't stress that point enough. This week is about the survivors of residential school. This is something they asked for. They asked for the Pope to come here. Yes, the apology was short of what, what I think was needed, but it was still so important. When, when Governor General Mary Simon refused to start the proceedings yesterday until until the elders actually arrived at the event. I think that just reminded us of, of why this last week has happened. Rashmi, you've obviously been following this on your show. Um, what did you make of this week? It's been uh, quite something to, to witness, and that's what we're all doing, right? We're witnessing um, this moment in history and, and how it's digested and absorbed, to Carl's point, is we look to the survivors, right? And so many Indigenous people here are thinking about their loved ones who have passed on. Uh, it's generational trauma that the Catholic Church imposed on this entire people. And so we have to now take this as the first step, I would suggest, and move forward with it and and continue the healing process for those impacted. And, and it's generational again, right? Um, but it's mixed responses, and I think that's what we should have expected, too, because, you know, what does the Pope think about this? Everyone is um, feeling everything in every moment. It's been such an emotional week. Um, but one, as a Canadian, I have been keeping my eyes peeled to take in all of and to not forget. That's the most important thing I think every Canadian can do is not forget this week and make sure that it matters going forward. Yeah, and I, you know, I've said, I think to to your point, um, is that we, you know, this isn't. I'm not Catholic, and I'm not Indigenous, right? So I'm I'm watching this occur. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important not to look away from these these events because I, I also think as a country, we've aided and abetted and frankly orchestrated this process. And Carl, to you. You know, Canada recently announced in the last uh, settlement of billions of dollars with Indigenous communities as part of an agreement for survivors of residential schools. Um, you know, Prime Minister Harper apologized in 2008, but do you think the government has taken enough responsibility for their actions? I feel like there's been a big discussion about the role of the Catholic Church in this, appropriately so. But sometimes I feel like we don't, as a country, look ourselves in the eye and acknowledge what we've done um, as and, part of this and what our government has done institutionally. Yeah, I never, I never want to lose sight of the good uh, in, in pursuit of perfection here, but, but I think that there are a lot of points where it's fair to be critical of the government. It, it shouldn't have taken Cindy Blackstock being monitored by secret police, be like having a file put on her when all she was trying to do was to advocate for Indigenous children. I still think there's like some fundamental paradigms about how Indigenous people are just expected to make do with less Meanwhile, the wealth of Canada is, is built on the extraction from First Nations lands. And so there's still some fundamental thinking at the very basic level that, that billions of dollars won't fix, that new programs won't fix, but that a, a fresh way of looking at Indigenous peoples and First Nations peoples as, as equals, as partners, as real people. I think that, that that's the change that we still have yet to see. I, I have hope from this week, in, including the, the role that the government had in making sure that survivors got to these events. But but yeah, of course, there's lots of work to be done. It's interesting you see at Hope Crawl, because when we talked to, earlier on the show, we talked to a day school survivor, and she similarly said she had hope. Um, and I, I took heart in that, because, you know, for me, I found 
the images were incredibly compelling. Like even when the Pope sort of came off, you know, the plane and he bent over and kissed the hand of, of one of the in, indigenous elders. Um, I thought that was really powerful, but I also know that's what the Catholic church, they, they, they're good at powerful images. Right. Um, and we need to kind of keep people's feet to the fire. So Rashmi, you know, I know you, we mentioned this is the start of a journey. Is there anything you'd like to see, you know, immediately? Like Absolutely. What we want to see next? Clean what drinking like water. Clean drinking water. Um, let's stop separating families. Uh, land back is something that people should look into. It means many different things and it can seem overwhelming. But if you just read up on it, you'll get a better understanding. It is a different scenario across this land. Our government is responsible for addressing every single scenario and fixing what we've taken. What did we take? Give it back. Clean water in this province is um, available to most of us. And to the ones who aren't, they deserve better than what we're giving them. And that's every level of government, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a fair point, right? We lose, like, we look at the pomp and circumstance of these big events and then you think, there are still Indigenous communities in the country that don't have running water, which is completely insane. So uh, good call there. Um, well, we'll certainly continue to watch this and probably continue to talk about this on the show. Uh, next up, a new debate, an endorsement, and threats of boycotts by the Conservative Party leadership candidates. Could this race get any more dramatic? We'll talk to the panel about that next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The free-for-all Friday roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Happy Friday to all of you. We're hours and hours away from our long weekends, friends. Hours away. I'm I'm happy to be here with you. I'm super happy to be here with the panel today with Rajmi Nair, who's a new guest on Free For All Friday and co-host of The Rush, which airs from 2 to 6. Monday to Friday on News Talk 1010 in Toronto. And, of course, Carl Docksetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in St. Catharines, London, and Windsor, Ontario, Saturdays from 10 to noon. This next uh, obviously caught my attention, this next topic. So um, former Prime Minister Harper endorsed Pierre Polyev to be the party's next leader this week. Now, this is after he spent the last two leadership elections sitting on the sidelines. He posted a short video to Twitter on Monday. Pierre Poiliev was a strong minister in my government. In the past several years, he's been our party's most vocal and effective critic of the Trudeau Liberals. He's been talking about the issues, especially the economic issues, that matter. For those wondering, Pierre Poiliev was the minister for... Oh, I've lost it. Shout out, no, Minister for Democratic Reform from 2013 to 2015 and Minister for Employment and Social Development in 2005. So not... Well, employment and social development is somewhat senior. Democratic reform is not that senior in the government, but certainly was a minister. He also said Polyev has made the strongest case that he's a candidate who will help the Conservatives win the next election. He's proposing answers rooted in sound Conservative ideas, but ones adapted for today's realities. That's why he has the strong support of our caucus and our existing membership, and why he is bringing the most new members and a new generation into our party. That's how we win the next federal election. Now, obviously, this is a big deal for conservatives. Um, Harper is the founder of the modern conservative party. Uh, he is he was successful. Um, the last six on the one and the only successful Though the party's not that old. It was uh, from 2003. Um, and there's also no secret that him and Sheree are not the best of friends as they openly campaigned against one another when Harper was in government. 
Now, this happened, and then in addition, the party said, you know, we're going to have another debate this week. We're, we're going to do one. We haven't had one in a while. We talked to our members. They want one. So originally, there was supposed to be two, one in French and one in English. They've added a third debate. But some of the candidates are coming, including uh, Pierre Polyev, who said he's going to sit this one out, and MP Leslin Lewis, who is threatening to boycott and have said she's not going to attend if they don't include questions on issues such as Canada's pandemic response, which to my mind is a fair thing to debate, absolutely. But she's also added concerns about the World Economic Forum. And from talking to folks on the campaigns, this issue, which isn't an actual issue, is one of the top things that gets talked about. Um, it's one of these conspiracy theories, sort of, frankly, not so you know, debates that seems to have kind of been the undercurrent in a lot of this party, which as, as a, as frankly, as a member concerns me, um, I'm happy to have a debate about pandemic response and the role of government. Uh, but obviously this debate, which is going to be taking place Wednesday at 6 PM, is only going to have Sheree, Roman Barber and Scott Edgerton. So I may sit this one out. And of course the ballots are on their way out the doors this week. Um, Patrick Brown's name is still on them, even though he's been kicked out. So this is quite, quite the leadership race friends. Uh, maybe Rashmi, I'll go to you first. Um, what do you make of Harper's endorsement and the, you know, kind of the circus of the conservative leadership race today. Yeah, it is fascinating. And you know, when it started, we didn't know if it was going to be entertaining all the way to September. But here we are on yeah. the eve of August and we're still into it deep. Um, we had John Charest on The Rush earlier this week and, and we asked him about the Stephen Harper video. And he says that that video was recorded during the stampede uh, when Poiliev was at his height. He was received so well out west. And uh, he takes it as a compliment that Stephen Harper is endorsing Poiliev. I, I think every Every average Canadian, uh, their eyebrows raised when they heard Stephen Harper endorsed anyone because he hadn't uh, over the last few uh, leaders and the candidacy races. So I, I think it is remarkable. To me, it secures Pierre Poiliev. Um, and people were expecting Harper maybe to support him anyway, because as you pointed out, uh, Poiliev worked for Stephen Harper. So it, it, it's not a surprise, but it is a surprise. Yeah, it certainly, you know, it surprised me mostly because... You know, there's a lot of ex-Harper folks that are kind of working around the Pierre Polyev campaign for sure. But I'm not sure it's necessary. Like, I actually, hmm. I don't think it was necessary. I think it's 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 helpful to Pierre for sure. I'm sure he'd love he'd love to have it. But it's also u unusual for former leaders um, to sort of jump into the fray like that, unless there's real things at risk. Yeah, um, I, I think. Carl, it, sorry, oh, ahead, sorry. I, I just wanted to offer that I think people have been thinking about the Harper era, he was prime minister for almost 10 years, right? And since mm -hmm. then, there's been so many disruptions that I, th I think it's been long enough that people are thinking, well, remember back then? So for him to come back, <laughs> it's almost to reassure some conservatives that, hey, we can go back to those days if you liked it. Yeah, boring worked back then, I think, a little bit. It was a lot more, <laughs> like, a lot less exciting. I'll tell you that. I worked for the guy, and it was just like, all right. He's funny, though, uh, in private. But uh, anyway, uh, Carl, what did you make of the uh, roller coaster um, lib or conservative leadership campaign, which included the uh, former prime minister's endorsement? Yeah, th this has really been something in, in terms of the Harper endorsement, I guess, I guess enough time has passed where, where it's not a bad thing. Uh, things were going well for the Harper government when things were going well for the Harper government, but they didn't, they didn't end well. I mean, imagine if, if Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne endorsed an Ontario liberal leader that, that wouldn't <laughs> be received. 
too well these no. days. So, but, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting campaign. There's no chance I'm watching that debate. I've, I've actually watched crazy slide whistles and all, like I've watched all the conservative debates and, and the like interesting formatting that the party has chosen, but, but yeah, just Sheree Barber and Scott Aitchison are, are not getting anybody excited. Uh, and so I, I think that kind of tells us where things are headed in September. It also tells me I forgot about the slide whistle. By the way, Carl, thank you for reminding us. I don't know if we. Oh yeah, that was great. That's that's going to be a good cultural moment in uh, Canadian history. (laughs) Yeah, but it also tells me about Sheree's campaign. If if Leslie Lewis and Pierre can afford to sit this one out and take a fifty k hit, then um, what does that say about Sheree that he's showing up to like every possible event to try and get some air in front of members? So I think that's a that's a that's a telling. Even though if you talk to his team, they say they've got the numbers. Um, from a pure sort of like mathematical equation to to make a go of it. I did want to ask you about this. So this World Economic Forum issue, obviously we've, or WEF as it's called by some folks, um, it was funny to me months ago, I was talking to a friend who was working on one of the campaigns and I said, so what are you hearing at these events? Like what are people coming up to talk to you about? What's the big issue? Assuming it would be the economy or inflation or no, they said the number one thing they're hearing at the at the rope lines and whatever is the world, people are coming to talk about the World Economic Forum, which is this crazy conspiracy theory that, you know, super rich people in the top of whatever are going to take us over and institute all kinds of like overt controls over our lives, which is not a, to me, a credible discussion. And yet, you know, it concerns me that it's, it's a major thread being raised by, and you can say what you want about Leslie Lewis, but she's actually like, she'll do well in this. Um, I would say she was going to come in third behind, behind um, Patrick Brown before she may, I don't know if she'll beat Sheree, but it's possible. Um, Rajmi, what does it say to you that that's like a topic that's bubbling up to mainstream? Yeah, it's just we don't know enough, right? We 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 don't actually know what all of these elected officials are doing with the World Economic Forum. We remember when prime ministers like Stephen Harper would address the WEF, and that was a thing. Uh, but I think it just it, it just exposes our. Um, our lack of knowledge and and we need to learn more and some people are deciding to take a very negative perspective on it and I, Leslie Lewis is uh raising alarms that do not need to be raised or flagged and that is a concern for me I think we can all reasonably understand that when a virus was ripping through the world but here in our country we did what we could to protect lives but also the economy nothing would be Nothing would have survived if we didn't try to take some public health measures to save lives, but also to protect some part of the economy. She's missing that part of her argument when she tries to uh, sow this kind of paranoia in people's minds about being controlled. I I think we've proven that, too, in the last two years, that if you don't want to be controlled, you can find ways to not be controlled or just live in your home and wait for things to ride itself out. It's not something that... We need to uh, freak out about. I think the World Economic Forum, the WHO, and all of these other global organizations intend, uh, they mean well, and it just depends on which players we put into those kinds of games, right? Anything about pulling out of these international organizations is just concerning because that means, you know, you're taking your ball and going home. Well, what do you do after that? You don't have anyone to play with. Are you even part of the game? I don't think it's a good thing for any country. People people yeah, don't I understand think... them though, and so I think that's all. I got Leslie five Lewis seconds left, Carl. Is, all Leslie Lewis has what? to do is capitalize on people's misunderstanding of these organizations that they don't see as working for them. Indeed. So I think certainly we'll uh, 
There we go. We're getting right into it at the end. I love that part of the debate. Uh, the federal government is getting heat of the rollout of their gun buyback program. Do these things work? That's next on the panel. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. It's Friday. It's almost a long weekend, and we are debating the biggest stories of the week on Free For All Friday. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. And joining me on our panel of newsmakers, opinion makers, and all-around wonderful people is Rush Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 1010 in Toronto from 2 to 6. She's also now a radio marathoner because she'll be doing five straight hours <laughs> of radio today for those in, in Toronto. So lucky you. And Carl Docksetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in St. Catharines, London, and Windsor, Ontario, Saturdays from 10 to noon. So this... Ottawa came out this week and announced that they are going to be uh, seeking input from business owners um, or gun owners, I say businesses and industry, on the gun buyback program, which they had talked about earlier this year. So the federal government is proposing to give gun owners, those that own AR-15 rifles, which if you've seen one of those is is substantial, $1,337 in compensation for turning it back in under the mandatory buyback program. So you remember back in May, the feds introduced this program. Here is Minister Marco Mendicino, Canada's public safety minister, talking about this. And today, I can confirm the imminent launch of the initial phase of this program as we begin consultations with industry on compensation. The first AR-15s and other assault-style firearms will start to be bought back by the end of this year. It's going to be hard, but we are going to get it done. Now, on the Evan Solomon Show yesterday, some listeners, not unsurprisingly, expressed their frustration with the program. Here's what one caller said. Look what your one caller text said. He said his gun is like four grand. You think he's going to give it up for half the cost or a quarter of the cost? I wouldn't. <laughs> now, interestingly, gun buyback programs have been around since the 90s. Um, they're primarily volunteer-based. So the ones that I have certainly, um, you know, when I was at the city of Toronto, for example, we, we looked at doing this and, and did one um, where, you know, it used to be you'd give your gun back if you wanted and you got back in the day, actually, like digital cameras, which young people will not know what those are, but they existed, or you get an iPhone or whatever. Um, this is a bit different in that it's a mandatory buyback program. So this is going to cover 1,500 models of what the government considers assault-style firearms. Now, there's no actual definition of that. Um, they've been banned for two years. So either you have to participate, you have your guns rendered inoperable at the government's expense, or you dispose of them. Um, and there's still an amnesty in place for gun owners until October 30th, 2023. Now, these buyback programs generally don't work. And you can talk to anyone in law enforcement and they say that this is, I mean, it's frankly, less guns on the, in the world, the better for me. I don't like them. I don't, I've never touched them. I understand there are lawful gun owners out there and I get it, but I don't know why you need to own an AR-15. But these buyback programs to me are not effective. I think people are going to ignore them. And I frankly don't have a lot of confidence in the government to implement a mandatory one. I do not. Um, but Carl, curious to you, do you think this is a good program? Do you think the government's running it correctly or, or giving a fraction of the value of these guns to like lawful gun owners isn't, isn't going to work and isn't going to make any sense? I, I agree with your statement that I'm not sure that the Canadian government is the best entity to implement <laughs> any kind of a gun buyback program. Um, however, I, I don't know if I can support what law enforcement said about a gun buyback program. I mean, I look at what happened in Australia. There was a lot of political will after one of their first major mass shootings 
Uh, they actually studied over the 2010s that their homicide rates, their suicide rates with guns went down a lot. So there is evidence that's out there. And I, I think Australia is a better example than the United States because they, they have a gun culture. They have a largely rural environment of, of people that, that supported having firearms, but they also unified as a nation. And I think that's, that's a big part that's left out of this is we have to have the political will to say we, we do not want to be like the Americans with, with the gun culture that we have over here. And so if this, if this buyback program can be part of that cultural shift, then I think, I think it can be successful. And it's interesting you said, cause yeah, like a lot of our, and if you talk to any of law enforcement officers, they say the biggest source of handguns and frankly, guns that are killing people is the States, right? It's not necessarily people that are buying them at Walmart or wherever here in Canada. Um, but Reshmi, what did you make of the government's announcement to speak with the buyback program? Do you think it'll be effective? Yeah, it won't be, right? Exactly to <laughs> your point. Uh, but it is one tool and, and we have to admit that government governments will do things for optics and then we have to hold them accountable for following through with real work. So this is an, th this is optics and, and, maybe one or two Canadians would actually follow through and give their gun away. There are some families where um, you you inherit your uh, you inherit people's guns and then you don't want them and you don't know what to do with them and you didn't spend any money. So maybe just over a thousand dollars is appealing. But yeah, it's it's a drop in the bucket. And just recently, Reuters uh, got exclusive data that showed at least here in Ontario, eighty five percent of the time, the guns that were used in crimes came from the U.S. Right. So. We all understand that. And I think that kind of data is very important for our government to at least admit that it it needs to move on from optics and look at the hard data, trace these guns back, stop the flow at the border, uh, which is not something that I would have said a month ago. But to see that kind of stat, 85 percent of the time uh, these guns are coming from the United States, that is our problem. And, and I'd like to see our governments focusing on that, as well as offering this buyback program as one tool in a big basket of tools. Yeah, and exactly right. Like literally when I was in the city, I remember they're saying, okay, how did the buyback program work? And to be fair, it was volunteer. It was not mandatory as the government's proposing here federally. And, you know, great uncle Tony's artisanal, you know, World War II gun was turned in. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's not, like it's not, gonna, <laughs> it's not going to do anything. No. Uh, and, and your point about, you know, optics, there are actual, you know, they could take them because we've all, I mean, I've worked in government, the bureaucracy, they're going to have to stand up to do this. Um, to trace people down, to track them down, to do that. That's a lot of money and a lot of man hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, Carl, where else would you like to see that effort put? Like, should that be put into increased, you know, border searches or, you know, surveillance? Where should that go instead? Because, I mean, I guess we can all say fine if they have it. But to my mind, I think they should shut this thing down and put the efforts elsewhere. I, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think you're going to close the border. Like, I, like that's that's the argument I've heard is that we need to instead of regulating guns more, which which it is effective. Like that's the only tool we have to have less guns and less firearm deaths is some form of regulation. I don't I don't think increased law enforcement. Which by the way, law enforcement officers at Canadian borders were armed, and I'm not even sure that that's something that that they asked for to have firearms by their side. I think I think just having less guns, regulating less guns, is effective. I, I don't think there's anything you can do about the leaky borders. The, the the things that happened. I, I'm not saying that that's completely hopeless, but if you're saying a gun buyback program isn't effective, then as somebody that lives in a border town, I'm going to tell you that there's not much that can be done to stem the tide of flow of goods between the United States and Canada. Rashmi, is there any steps you would like to see the government take beyond this? Um, anything material that comes to your mind? Uh, with gun control or at least keeping people safe, I would just like to see, you know, stiffer sentences. And you know, we, yeah. we talk about that when 
And we know that gangs use younger people to commit the crimes that so then they serve less time in prison, right? If we know it, we see it, it's happening for a generation, we need to address that. I, I would like to see governments just cracking down on, on these kinds of crimes and, and making it impossible for someone uh, who has a weapon to have a weapon in their hands ever again. There's no evidence that mandatory minimums work, though. Like, like I, I also have been a court worker in a past life. You have to give judges the discretion to come up with solutions that actually help people that are accused of crimes. If you have more mandatory minimum sentences, people aren't thinking of this in the time and the moment of, of the passion of the crime. Nobody is thinking about what's happening. The United States has mandatory minimums and those types of sentencing. And what do they get from it? They get full prisons and plenty of guns. Yeah, I, I'm not saying lock someone up forever, but if you're caught with a gun and then you get posted, you post bail or how much how much time do you serve for having a weapon on you? And, and the next time you have a weapon on you, because these are repeat offenders, right? So on the second offense, throw them in jail. On the third offense, throw them in jail longer. Uh, it's it has to you have to make these people inaccessible to the gangsters who are using them as pawns. Or find a way to keep the guns out of their hands in the first place. And that's what a buyback program is designed to do. Well, I would say stop the flow of the borders, but you're telling me it's impossible. That was really disappointing because <laughs> that's our biggest problem. Yeah, I think um, also I, I think it's weird. It's, it's This is a great debate. I think this is the big important part of this debate, right, is is the mandatory minutes are controversial. And yet I think particularly we see it a lot in I see it a lot in Toronto. It's the same people committing the same crimes over and over again. But yeah, and I, and I know walking. some of these kids and they, they, it needs to not be appealing to follow through in the crime that they're being asked to conduct. It, we have to take that appeal away. Well, good I news mean, is... I, help, I help people oh, that, are, that are working at a friendship center, too. I help people that are at risk for, for violence and gang life as well. And I think pro providing supports and alternatives to that lifestyle is also a crucial step here. 100 percent. All right. Next, after the break, we're going to talk about a new trick to get through airports and if the panel thinks it's ethical. That's next on Free For All Friday. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. We've reached the last block, which is where we try and have a little fun with our panel. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, as we take you into this amazing long weekend. And today with me, I have Rush Nair, co-host of The Rush on News Talk 1010 from 2 to 6 in Toronto, and Carl Dockstetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in St. Catharines, London, and Windsor on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 12, or to noon, I should say. Uh, so this story caught my eye. We've got two, I will say, they're two TikTok stories, but I think they're they're great debatables here. Um, and this one caught my eye just because of a personal connection. So a TikTok user has angered social media by pretending to need a wheelchair in order to skip long queues at airports. So obviously, we've been following the airport madness here in Canada um, and around the world. So the student, Wolf Jenkins, filmed himself jumping queues, or lines, at Ibiza Airport before a flight home to Bristol, admitting he had pretended to have an an injured ankle and was given a wheelchair. This is him um, talking on the video, removing his shoe and sock and showing that nothing had happened to him. Faked hurting my leg to get through security faster and onto the plane back from Ibiza. That is obviously the automated voiceover the TikTok uses. He's not a British butler. Um, and then he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, cont 
continued to post this. Now, I bring this up because I have actually mentioned this in the show, but I am I am pregnant. I am seven and a bit months pregnant, and I've flown a couple times in the last few weeks. And both first time I was offered in line because um, I look very pregnant to can you still stand? And I've been working out and whatever, so I did not skip the line. I just felt like I could. I was almost at the front. I was good. And then a couple days ago, I was trying to fly back at 6.45 a.m., and there was this massive line, and I was worried about missing my plane. And I almost pulled the pregnancy card and just said, and I was actually getting nauseous and hungry, and I, but I'm like, nope, I can do this. I can get through it. And I did not, I did not use, pull the prego card. I did not do it. But I was curious, um, Rashmi, have you, do you think this is, have you ever faked or tried to get out of security line? Or do you think that given what's happening in the world, how dysfunctional airports are, this stuff is fair game? No, I think it's terrible. I would never park in a handicap zone. I, it's just terrible, this behavior. I think you, at seven and a half months, congratulations, you Thank could you. have you could have used a wheelchair, absolutely, and everyone would have been <laughs> very supportive of that. So I think, I think you would not have been a criminal if you did that. But I would feel terrible, terrible. Uh, and, you know, we talked about this on the rush, to, well, with our team, just thinking, you know, like, what if someone actually needed these wheelchairs and they weren't available? It's a terrible thing to think about, but it is a symptom of the mess that we're seeing at airports. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I hope if I end up in a wheelchair in this pregnancy, I, I think <laughs> I'm going to give myself a fail. It's, uh, it's the parental we'll, leave. It's when, it's when the baby's here is when you're going to need the rest. <laughs> yeah. That part I'm, I'm deeply concerned about. I will be honest with you. Uh, Carl, um, wh- what do you think of this? Do you think it's, uh, you know, Lord of the Flies now given the dysfunction at the airports or is this, this guy, is this a bridge too far? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I, I've seen this kind of stuff. My, my dad's a 73-year-old vet. We had the pleasure of traveling for a week in the spring. And some places, it was like people were getting out of the way as, as he used his, his wheelchair to get around. And in other places, I, I thought we were going to get pushed over. Like, I, I, just, I just thought that wheelchairs and the people with accessibilities, I thought this was one of those issues that we had solved where it's like, yeah, let's just be nice and give people the benefit of the doubt. But with the pandemonium at the airport, like, I think Lord of the Flies, that's, that's a very, very accurate description. <laughs> it was certainly uh it was people were going crazy when i was anyway the few times i've been there they've gone crazy through this stuff but um i am now i'm at the point it's been joyful though i get on the ttc and automatically people just stare at me and stand up it's the like the funniest experience oh, of my life nice. I, I just, yeah i'm just like they're like would you like i'm like i'm okay i'm like i, I just like i just did squats with 130 pounds on my back like i can stand for five minutes but thank you very much for all they just want to make sure you don't love they just want to make sure you don't love sandwiches they want to make sure they give you the pregnancy treatment that you're actually pregnant (laughs) (laughs) but your belly is also in their face right so the guilt is right there if they're sitting and you're standing (laughs) this is true this is true all right i want to throw this one out to you uh next here so this is another story that sort of came out um a, a young woman posted a video on her social media uh talking about her work and how much she loves all of the free things that she gets at work. They have free breakfast, a hygiene station, hair tools, unlimited snacks, a candy and sandwich bar. Um, this video has garnered 4.3 million views. Now, a study by USA Today said 56% of companies have happy or very happy employees right now, but that number jumps to 67% if you have free food. Now, I work my day job when I'm not hosting radio shows is at Navigator, and we have snack time every day, which is like one of my favorite things because it makes me feel like a kid, and I'm always hungry at three, because I'm pregnant and other things, so I can go get food and then go back to my desk. There's like unlimited like juices and that kind of stuff. So it actually stops me from going 
down, you know, stepping away. And but people started to react to this and say, this is actually this isn't a good thing. This is just, you know, capitalist businesses trying to trick you into staying and working longer hours. You know, you you should be wise to this. They shouldn't be doing this. So, uh, Reshmi, do you think this is a good thing or is this we're tricking employees to working 12 hour days with a snack bar? Yeah, I think we all knew about the trick, right? I remember when Google opened in Toronto and a few friends worked there, uh, they brought us in for a tour and I couldn't believe it because, yeah, they built all of that to keep you there so you don't go home. You work harder in the beanbag, but, but anything you want is there as well. I remember every color of cereal, ice cream, you know, it, it, it was amazing. I wouldn't leave. <laughs> I would stay there. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been to the Google offices too, and they are they are they're I mean, incredible. The nav offices are nice, but they're insane. Yeah, the and they interestingly they keep the unhealthy snacks in darker containers <laughs> because they don't you don't but you know they're there. Like the M and M's are there, you just can't see them. That's so true. <laughs> uh, Carl, are you are you pro employee snacks, or do we think this is a great capitalist ploy, as one person said, uh, to encourage workers to uh, work for less money and longer hours? I, I had a fundamental problem with the topic. I, I went to do some research <laughs> on, on TikTok and I ended up watching an hour's worth of TikTok videos totally unrelated to this. So I'm woefully <laughs> underprepared today because it's just so darn addictive. It is completely addictive. Can, can we just have TikTok hour at work? That, that might lure me into staying at the workplace longer, though I don't know how productive I'll be. <laughs> I, it, I was, was just talking to Mark, uh, producer Mark beforehand, and I, I have TikTok for work and to do that because I think it's it's important to understand it. But the idea of posting to it, and I'm going to sound really old now, it just seems exhausting to me. It that looks you have exhausting. To I'm not on TikTok, but I mean, like as a journalist, like everyone's a reporter now. They're talking into their camera, they're editing, there's audio. It's too much. It's too much. Yeah. I, I heard in a business report now. earlier this week that, that more young people are going to TikTok now than to Google for, for searching things. If I, if I ask my kids to Google something, they might look at me and go, you mean, you mean TikTok? Oh. You want me to go on TikTok oh, no. and find us a restaurant? I don't, oh, I don't no. understand. What's this Google Maps thing that you're talking about? Oh, no. So yeah, it's the shift. The shift is happening without us, friends. <laughs> oh, no. uh, we're just we're we're all old. That's uh that's a full admit. All right, I we've we've got to say goodbye in about uh, forty five seconds or so. But um, thank you both for any big exciting long weekend plans for either Rushmi or Carl. Going go anywhere exciting other than Rushmi's going to work for four hours <laughs> after this? <laughs> it is my mother's birthday tomorrow, so shout out oh! to my mom. Happy birthday. We love you. Yeah, we'll yeah, be guys, I've got five birthday. hours. I've got five hours of radio spread out over six hours tomorrow morning. So tune in at 6 a.m. to 610 CKTV, and I'll be there bright and early. Amazing. All right. Well, uh, Reshmi and Carl, thank you both for joining uh, the show today. Uh, as you've heard, uh, both of them have our radio marathoners, apparently. So you can keep stay on News Talk 1010 if you're in Toronto. You want to keep hearing Reshmi and her hot takes. And Carl is around lots tomorrow. Um, thank you so much for all of you for listening. I hope you have an amazing long weekend and thank you all for the congratulatory text about my pregnancy i really appreciate that including the advice that i need to lay out the squats because my muscles will be too tight so i appreciate all the the input there um thank you so much to the technical producer mark and sam i'm amanda galbraith i will see you next friday